Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, your sturdy companion on the journey through Swedish history. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa, and this is episode 64. Can you believe we've made 64 regular episodes plus six special episodes? Uh, I mean, if the podcast was a person, it would be approaching retirement. Yeah, but don't worry, we don't have any plans to retire or retire the podcast. It's still one of the best things we do, and the fact that we have listeners who like it and engage with the content is such a thrill. It really is. I mean, it can sound very glib and kind of over the top when podcasters keep thanking their listeners, but it is really great that there are so many of you out there that listen and enjoy what Chris and I enjoy making so much. A special hello to everyone if you're a new listener and just dipping your feet into the pool of Swedish history or you've been around for a while. Yes, and that pool, to be honest, has been a bit of a cesspool recently, at least in terms of its politics. As we're journeying on through the 1300s, we've covered a lot of political scheming and royal fighting and noblemen who are of less than noble character, so to speak, and there's no doubt more of that kind of stuff to come. But before we can continue to swim in this pool of Swedish history, we're going to need to do something different for today's episode. A few weeks ago, we got an email from our listener, Mark, which we mentioned when he sent it in. He suggested that we should do a recap episode to summarise everything we've talked about so far. And we thought this sounded like a great idea. We've covered a huge amount of ground already, and so pausing to reflect on how Sweden got to where it is in our narrative, uh, now we've reached the latter half of the 14th century, is probably pretty useful. I realised, as I was reading through old scripts to prepare for this episode, that I had forgotten some of the things that we talked about, and it was really fun to go back and see that, like, oh yeah, that happened, that was interesting, sort of thing. Yeah, there was so much really good stuff that we got to talk about so long ago now, some of it over two years ago. But before we get going with the recap, we're not going to forget the Swedish phrase of the week. And this phrase is tala i natmussan. And that means talk in the nightcap, which makes no sense whatsoever. Like talk into it like a phone? Or... <laughs> yeah, this is one of those phrases that has no real logic to it. First of all, when we say nightcap, we don't mean that in its figurative sense, uh, like meaning a little drink that you have before bed. We mean a literal nightcap or hat, like one of those white frilly things that people used to wear to bed in the 1800s. Uh, and before that as well, I suppose. Tala i natmössan, or to talk in the nightcap, means to talk nonsense. Like, you could say, oh, there's that politician on the news again, talking in the nightcap like they know what life is like for ordinary people. When I looked this phrase up on the Nordic History Museum's webpage, where they have a great kind of dictionary of old Swedish phrases, it's said that the phrase most likely derives from how people may be speak less coherently when they're tired or when they've just woken up or maybe even talking in their sleep. In either case, it'd be when they were wearing their nightcap 
they'd be speaking sort of less coherently and that has developed into meaning to talk nonsense a bit like how your brother would wake up and start giving people orders around the house like second platoon take the ridge over there when he was in the military literally giving people your mum and you orders yes yes my my brother talks in his sleep or, or used to at least uh, i don't share uh sleeping quarters with him that often anymore but yeah he uh he talked in his sleep uh he didn't wear a cap though or a hat so he didn't talk in a in a literal nightcap but he he is well yeah a, a sort of halfway usage of this phrase yeah he, well when, when he was asleep he was talking rubbish so yeah, yeah. but we're not going to be talking rubbish or talking about nightcaps here in the recap episode because we're going to go all the way back to episode one where there definitely weren't any nightcaps around so uh shall we start then Yes, and we're going to go through this fairly quickly, looking at the main highlights or most important points of the episodes. We're not going to go into detail on each and every one. And going all the way back to the first episode, I remember that we talked a bit about when the history of Sweden begins, which is almost a philosophical question, but we decided that we would start our journey through the history of Sweden when the first people arrived here. And even that is a very relative, not fixed starting point. Yeah, very much so. And that's because there's some indications that there were inhabitants in what is nowadays Sweden before the last ice age. But the real settlement began as that ice started retreating around 11,000 BCE, so 13,000 odd years ago. And that was back when Sweden was connected to the continent. And so was where I'm from, the British Isles. It was only as this ice retracted and melted that the huge seas we know of today, like the Baltic Sea, the North Sea, the Ugrasund Strait and the English Channel were even created. Yeah, I think you said something in that first episode about walking to Dublin for a pint of Guinness back then. Yeah, that would have been possible. Well, it wouldn't have been because there would be no Guinness. But Yeah, well, the walking bit was possible. <laughs> Guinness aside, this connection was actually vital for Swedish settlement, this connection with the continent, because they were the continent. The majority of research indicates that Sweden was populated from the south, but also a bit from the east. The people who settled in Sweden were hunters, and they followed the wild animals that roamed the countryside, and these people mainly ate reindeer, and so they moved north. It's quite fascinating that there is a connection to reindeers going so far back, considering we still eat reindeer today in Sweden. There are still reindeers around, and the herding and caring of reindeers is a major part of Sami enterprise and culture. So the reindeer has clearly been very important to us, going all the way back to the first... Swedes, uh, maybe we should do an episode all about reindeers. Yeah, maybe we should at some point. And as Sweden was predominantly settled from the south going north, and considering that when the first people arrived in Sweden, large parts of the north of the country were still covered in ice, it's not surprising that it's in the south of the country that we find the earliest archaeological remains of human settlements. And this is in places like Simrisham and in Argerud in Skåne. 
I must say, as a Skåning myself, I'm very pleased that the first Swedes were also Skåningar. But there weren't many of them. As we enter the period of the Stone Age known as the Mesolithic period, so between roughly 8000 BCE and 5000 BCE, well, the population of Sweden was estimated to be about 10 to 25,000 people. And like we said in all of those episodes, but it's worth saying again now, we're just picking these areas that we're talking about because they're part of modern-day Sweden, not that these people 8,000 years ago were calling it Sweden. That's still a long way to come. But yeah, the population of this blob that isn't Sweden yet is roughly the size of a small town today. But that figure would grow, of course, and until we eventually hit a million people by the start of the 1300s, that was before the Black Death arrived. But before we get that far in the future, do you remember who we met, that very special person in episode one? Oh yes, Bekaskogskvinnan, the woman from Bekaskog, as she's known, the oldest Swedish person that we've found the remains of. Yes, indeed, Bekaskogskvinnan lived around 6700 BCE and was part of a community of small hunter-gatherers that lived in the south and southwest of modern-day Sweden. Around 8,200 BCE, it got warmer in what is today Sweden, and the last of the ice finally retreated. In fact, around the time when Bekerskogskvinnan lived in Sweden, it had a nice, even Mediterranean-style climate, which was a lot warmer than we have today. Hunter-gatherer communities, or rather hunter-gather-fishing communities to be exact, like the ones that Bekerskogkvinnan belonged to, hunted deer, ox and wild boar, with a few but very well-made tools. They hung out with friends and family members and met up with other groups too every now and then. A rather nice life, really. The Bekerskogskvinnan's remains were found by a farmhand who was digging a field in June of 1939, and at first she was determined to be a man, mainly because her grave contained arrows, remains of fishing nets, and other hunting-associated tools. But that really says more about the archaeologists in the 1930s, because when they did a proper analysis of the bones in the 1970s, it was clearly determined that she was a woman and had given birth to several children. Yeah, we really should go see her, because the remains are preserved in the Swedish History Museum. We must have missed that, especially considering we, well, I recorded an episode there, and we went ourselves there for a recce um, and have our own look around. So yeah, we, we clearly missed her. Maybe she's not on display. Maybe. She's covered up. But yeah, we stayed in the Stone Age for the next two episodes as well, and we saw how Swedes went from being nomadic hunter-gatherers to settling down and beginning to farm. And this was something they did quite late compared to other places in Europe and the Middle East and beyond. And it's also not like this change happened overnight or all in one go. It was actually quite the opposite because for a long time, farming and hunter-gatherers coexisted in the same people and groups and communities. Just like everywhere else, farming really changed the early Swedes' way of life. It meant that they started living more permanently in one space, 
building more permanent structures near their fields and near their now domesticated animals like cows and ox and sheep. It also led to extensive social change as the family unit became more cemented and the idea of inheriting land and goods brought about a stronger need to control reproduction and especially female reproduction to make sure basically that you were certain whose child was whose basically. It also changed and also solidified gender roles because when farming, certain tasks were seen as more suitable for women and others for men. It's also from this time period that we have all those rock carvings from all over Sweden as a very physical connection to this time period, even though it's thousands of years ago. In our last episode on the Stone Age, we talked about the period from 4200 BCE to about 1800 BCE, and uh, that's where we met a few groups of people. That's where we had uh, the different cultures. Yeah, exactly, and they all had funny names. There was the funnel cup culture, the pitted ware culture, and the boat axe culture, or sometimes known as the battle axe culture. And they're actually quite different from each other, but we don't want to pick a favourite right now. So if you want a bit more information or a bit of a review of those, check out episode four, because that was all about them. We then moved into the Bronze Age, and we really saw Sweden developing as a society, or civilization for the lack of a better word and Swedes becoming more connected to something larger than themselves and their nearest community because during this period trade really started to take off and through trade Sweden or rather Swedish communities because there really is no unified Sweden yet But through trade, it becomes part of a network that spans both to the east and west of the Baltic Sea. The Swedes are trading both animal products like fur, but also copper and other metals. And of course, that amber, the orangey-coloured gemstone that's actually fossilised tree resin, that could be found along the coast along the Baltic Sea. And this amber really was a gold mine, if you forgive the wrongness of that pun. This amber was the amber mine for the Swedes at the time, since it was really sought after everywhere, and everyone from Britain to the Mediterranean wanted this amber to make nice pieces of jewellery out of. And in return for this amber, the Swedes got new techniques for metalworking that improved both their weaponry and their farming tools and their decorations. And this was the metal that, of course, gave its name to the period bronze. I think it's really interesting that we start seeing this interconnectedness already in the Bronze Age. That is something that has been with us ever since. And it's largely thanks to the coast and traveling at sea that Sweden joins this international or at least European network. I remember we used a quote from Norwegian researcher Frode Kvale in one of our Bronze Age episodes, and I still think it sums up the development in this period really well. He says... Ideas, raw materials, and material culture were spread far and wide through the use of seagoing vessels. The institution of travel brought together different local groups and established networks of interaction along the coasts of Scandinavia. 
and as such is a fundamental condition and premise for the Nordic Bronze Age. But whilst Bronze Age Sweden expanded to become closer connected to the rest of the world through trade, the vast majority of the Swedes at the time lived their lives closer to home, so to speak. Yes, they continued with their farming, lived their lives with the family unit as the main social connection in long rectangular houses that they shared with their animals. They're very lovely. They didn't really have to move around too much. No, uh, it was lovely for them in the sense that it helped them stay warm, but probably less lovely in the sense of smell and dirt when you share your house with pigs. Like actual pigs, not just people who are a bit messy. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. (laughs) These families and their farms would cluster together in villages and thanks to these village structures where not everyone had to work the land all the time just to eat, artisanal specializations developed so that people could produce what was needed for the village to live and thrive. Especially skills connected with sailing and boats were important since, well, that's what allowed for this trade and interconnectedness that we talked about. In episode 6, we talked about the many graves in this period that have been found, excavated and analysed. And the fact that some of these graves were richer than others and that the tools and accessories that a person were buried with varied is an indication that a society with different roles or classes were developing, even to the extent that there might quite likely have been local chieftains ruling in their specific particular local areas. Painted stones and inscriptions are another source that help Historians get an idea of what life was like in Bronze Age Sweden. And there's certainly no shortage of them. Europe's largest concentration of prehistoric rock art is to be found in Sweden, in Bohuslän to be precise, where about 1,500 sites have been recorded. And for every site, there are about a million academic articles, uh, which is a slight exaggeration, of course, but it's a topic that's attracted plenty of research and debate. Basically, it concludes that the imagery may be secular images of everyday life, such as farming, hunting, and maritime trade, or it might be sacred, as they sometimes include classical religious motifs, including the sun, ships, and what might be gods of the hunt or fertility. So it's a perfect topic for interesting interpretation. It could be anything. Yeah, well, within these two very broad, specific areas. Yeah. It could be secular or religious. In episodes 7, 8, and 9, we moved into the Iron Age. So that's 500 BCE to 800 CE, circa. Trade seemed to have dried up a bit, at least in the early part of the period, and Sweden ended up being more in the backwater of Europe. The climate also got colder. Previous generations of historians have argued that the Iron Age was a period that we have fewer sources from and know less about. But as we saw in episode 7 that we called the not-so-missing Iron Age, that's not really the case anymore, although there are still fewer sources from this period compared to both before and after. 
yeah, we're learning more and more each year that passes. And the Swedes of the time most likely learnt about the metal that gives the period its name from abroad, and perhaps from contact with Celtic communities. Iron would become very important for the population, even more so in day-to-day life than bronze. Thanks to iron, you could make better and stronger tools, it's perhaps obvious, uh, to use in everyday life, in farming and when building houses and so on. It really works for everything. When analysing habitation patterns, historians have seen that as it got colder and generally harsher, more people moved inland to new areas and they also began farming more independently rather than in larger village communities, thanks to these new and improved tools that the iron brought with it. One development in this period that I remember we talked at length about, mainly because of my love for food and particularly love of bread, was how the introduction of iron led to a refined bread-making process in Sweden because it made it possible to build larger and more effective mills. Which is great to know. And it's also from this period that we start to have the first very vague mentions of Sweden in written sources, or at least what has now been interpreted as referring to Sweden or Scandinavia. And one of these examples, Virgilius, the Roman poet who lived in the first century CE, used the term Ultima Thula, meaning the land furthest away, which is quite nice as a term and, uh, yeah, probably relatively accurate for a Roman poet of the time. It is. It goes to show that Sweden is far from where the action is, so to say, if we think of ancient Greece or Rome, it's just referred to as like that place far away. That we've not even been to. <laughs> Later on in the period, we begin to see a move back to more communal organized farming. And there's also improvements in boat building, which is very important since that will lay the foundation for the later Viking period and all the seafaring that those guys got up to. Yes, absolutely. And trade also began flourishing again. On Helga Island in Lake Melloran, Archaeological digs have shown that there was a settlement there from about 400 to 800 CE, and the place of manufacture of intricate jewellery and a hub for commerce. Items found there include casting moulds, gold Roman coins, a bishop's staff of Celtic origin, and even a small bronze Buddha from India, which uh, I know we love talking about. Yeah, I mean, that is extraordinary, and it contradicts what I just said about Sweden being a backwater compared to the Mediterranean. I mean... Maybe it wasn't the centre of the world at the time, but it also seems like the area wasn't completely alien to the rest of the world. No, it's it's still connected to a certain extent, as you said, just maybe not being the very epicentre of culture and society compared to other places further south. But as the wealth and connections of the people living in Sweden expanded, we can see more traces of a political structure starting to appear in Sweden, but it's still far from what we call a state or Sweden. Nonetheless, the physical evidence in the form of hundreds of circular hill forts all over the place, and they indicate that at least on a smaller scale and on a local basis, people are gathering together around a leader to assert power and defend themselves from other people. 
These hill forts could have been the centres of power for ambitious would-be rulers trying to assert themselves over people or production centres. As part of this, Byron Nordström in his book History of Sweden talks about the migration and vendal periods, which are part of the latter part of the Iron Age, and he says, The migration and vendal periods were times of great wealth, artistic creativity, changing cult and burial practices, and violence. The graves, hoards, and treasure finds, remains of literally hundreds of fortifications, and a record of abandoned villages and farming sites reflect these characteristics. Many aspects of art, society, and politics in these periods may also be seen as direct precursors to the Viking Age. So you can really see how we're gearing up to the Viking Age here. Another feature of Scandinavian history that is perhaps more associated with the Vikings, but that actually begins in the Iron Age, are the sagas. Saga is Old Norse and simply means a story. If you're interested in sagas and want to learn all about them and hear the crazy tales that they tell you, you definitely check out the Saga Thing podcast. Uh, the hosts not only have beards, which is surely a prerequisite for any knowledge of sagas, but more importantly, they're both professors of medieval literature and uh, love the sagas, so do check those out. Yeah, I think them being professors are slightly more important than the beards, but yes, definitely check out Saga Thing for all things saga-related as it says on the tin. Most sagas were works of fiction, but they still hold some historic value, especially if interpreted and analysed together with other sources and by people with knowledge on the subject. It's thanks to the developments in the Iron Age that we start to see larger groups of people joining together in more defined territories and forming the basis of what would become the various Scandinavian countries. Around the year zero, Norway and Denmark had developed into more defined territories than Sweden had, and their inhabitants were grouped together as Danes and Norse, although Norse is a term that could often be used to mean anyone from the Nordic countries. It's also unclear, and to a certain extent impossible to know, to what extent the people living at the time had formed an identity around being inhabitants of a certain territory or belonging to a certain group of people that was wider than their local village. True. Denmark and Norway were definitely ahead of us when it came to unifying and solidifying as entities, even though it's important to remember that they were far from the nation-states of today. At the turn of the millennium, Sweden was still a mix of local chiefdoms and groups of people. Until recently, it was an accepted historical fact to talk about three main groups of people inhabiting Sweden around this time, Svear, Götar and Guter, or in English, Svear, Geats and Goths. These Goths were said to live on the island of Gotland, hence the name. The Svear lived in eastern Sweden around Lake Melleren and the Jörta in the west or more around the Lake Vernon area. But it's highly debated whether they were indeed defined separate people or if they were unified within each territory. What can be seen and what will remain for a long time in Swedish history is a bit of a distinction between the different areas. Gotland and Goths are naturally a separate entity because, well, it's an island, and as such will have a development that's slightly different from the mainland. 
There is also a tendency for the area around Mälaren, Svealand, to be more closely connected, and the same with Götaland further to the south and west. But again, that could be more to do with the geographical proximity than it being populated by different groups or tribes, as was previously believed. Yeah, the main point here is that Sweden was still far from a unified territory and political entity. And that's also because, let's not forget, the north of the country was still populated basically exclusively by the Sami, an indigenous people with a unique history and historical development of their own. You're right, and it's still on our list of things to do to make a special episode or episodes on Sami history, by the way. We've not forgotten about that. No, we definitely haven't. As we continue through time, we moved into double-digit episode numbers as well. And that was when we moved into the time period that Sweden is perhaps most famous for, the Viking Age. Ah, yes, the Vikings. We spent 11 episodes from episode 10 to 21, covering the years 800 to 1100 CE, which is the period of the early Middle Ages that we call the Viking Age. And I remember our listenership spiked. There are clearly a lot of people out there who want to listen to uh, podcasts about Vikings. Yes, and there's no doubt people found us specifically thanks to the Vikings and perhaps stuck around. So uh, let us know if you were one of those. And another thing that also spiked was our reading list, because this is naturally a very well-researched and written-about period. Indeed, there are still a few shelves in one of our bookshelves that is just full of books about Vikings. I remember starting off in episode 10 with doing some myth-busting, including that the Vikings never wore those horned helmets. That is something that comes from a German opera in the 1800s. And now, the Vikings wouldn't have been the Vikings without their boats, and that's what enabled them to travel and trade and invade to the extent that they did. Their boats were long, narrow, and shallow, so that was two uh, rhymes in a row there, and uh, hence why they're called longboats. This long and narrow shape was very important for travelling down rivers, which was particularly important for those Vikings who headed east. Some boats can even be dragged and sometimes carried between rivers. And whilst it's not open at the moment, if you're in Oslo in about three or four years' time, you should head to the Viking Ship Museum to see some of the world's best preserved ships from this time, if it survives. There's been a lot of uh, controversy about the Norwegian government taking away the funding and lots of angry archaeologists and history enthusiasts online and all around the world. So fingers crossed they will actually survive. But uh, they've survived until 2022, whether or not the Norwegian government lets them survive any longer is uh, kind of up to them but uh, fingers crossed at least with the help of their longboats, the vikings traded and invaded a practice that seemed to go hand in hand as is illustrated by this nice quote from historian soren michael sindbeck the viking age is renowned as an era when trade and war went happily together raids being so to speak a continuation of trade by other means. I think it's important to remember, especially when we have a tendency to think that Vikings were quite cool and that Swedish football fans dress up like them today, that um, they weren't necessarily very nice or very cool to the people that they met. No, the Vikings 
trade by other means, i.e. their raiding and fighting, that was violent and indiscriminate towards the people they met. As the monks in Lindisfarne Abbey on the English East Coast famously wrote when they were invaded in June 793, they wrote this on the Abbey's wall, from the fury of the Northmen deliver us, O Lord. So that's clearly written by someone who isn't going, yay, the Vikings are coming. Yeah, yeah, I can buy cheap things. (laughs) But the Viking period wasn't always about trading or raiding. In fact, historians believe that being a Viking was much more of a seasonal job, something you did for a bit, going a Viking, when your local chieftain wanted to get a raiding or trading party together. But when you weren't doing that, you were back on your farm and doing handicraft and doing the general day-to-day life of rural people back then. Exactly. Viking-era farms were often clustered together in small settlements or communities. On these farms, they grew vegetables, barley and rye, and to a smaller extent, wheat. The Vikings also kept livestock, cows, ox, goats, sheep and pigs. Horses were less common and mainly used for pulling carts and not so much for riding. The Viking period saw the introduction of a practice uh, when it comes to keeping livestock that's remained in Sweden for many hundreds of years. It's called fäbodrift, and it's when animals are herded to an upland area in summer and then a lowland area in winter to get better feed. And just like their boats, some of the Vikings' houses were long, and called long houses. Many of them were constructed using a technique called stave construction. That's when wooden slats are driven into the ground to form a continuous wall, and then a buttress is placed on top of that, and then you make a thatched roof on top of that with a hole in it for the smoke to come out from, and... Sometimes these houses had a dugout kind of semi-cellar that was used for storage too. And in Norway, there's still a fair few of these stave-constructed houses around, and including some amazing churches, which uh, I've seen quite a few of. Uh, So if you're ever in the Norwegian area, go check out a stave church. Thanks to the archaeological finds and thanks to depictions in literature such as the Icelandic sagas, we know a fair bit about what the Vikings looked like, or at least how they dressed. They wore shirts and cloaks, trousers, dresses, shoes and gloves. The sagas also give examples of how textiles and clothes were given as gifts and used in exchange and trade. Even though most Swedes during the Viking Age would have hung out at home, farmed and done crafts and generally lived more local lives, the Vikings are of course famous for what they did when they went abroad. Hugely simplified, you could say that most of the Vikings from Denmark and Norway sailed west, and from Sweden they primarily sailed east. And that's why we talked primarily about Viking journeys in the east in our podcast, and these were interactions with the Rus and their arrival in Constantinople, and less so about their dealings in Britain, Ireland, and over to North America. Again, it's a big simplification, especially because the three Scandinavian kingdoms hadn't necessarily solidified into three separate kingdoms throughout the whole period, but it's an easier way for us to structure what we were talking about. 
Yes, and so we spent two episodes, episodes 14 and 15, looking in particular at the Swedish Vikings who went east and how they eventually developed and mixed with locals until they became the people and the culture known as the Rus. Yes, and we talked about all the different theories behind this, whether or not these roofs were more Viking or more Slavic and all this kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of debate out there, but it's all uh, worth listening to again if you're interested in that sort of thing. These Vikings that headed east got up to some quite cool stuff. They established Sweden's first embassy. They founded Kiev. They were part of the Varangian Guard, they fought in the Rus-Byzantine Wars, and they went on and attacked Constantinople in 860. That was when they used these ships that they set on fire and pushed into the harbour. I mean, that was pretty badass. Speaking of Vikings who exhibited badass behaviour, there was Rurik and Oleg, the first two rulers in Kiev, who were descendants of Swedish Vikings. Yes, and then there was Olga, who fought off a rebelling tribe after they had killed her husband, and was key in introducing Christianity to the Rus. She was one of the people that you and your brother talked about when you did episode 18 on Viking women biographies. Yeah, that was a great episode, and that was the only episode you haven't featured in, apart from the one where you uh, only appeared in the intro and the outro of the uh, interview with Thomas Neyman recently. So uh, I've been in every episode and you haven't. Yeah, that's very unfortunate. I think I need to do a special episode that you're not in to make up for it. No. Olga's story wasn't the only woman's story that we looked into. Apart from her and the other women we talked about in the biography episode, we also spent episodes 16 and 17 talking about the lives of women in this time period, how they could execute quite a lot of independence, were in charge of running farms, and sometimes had small businesses like sale-making. We also looked at what marriage was like in pre-Christianity Sweden, and if and how Viking women participated in raids and wars. A very valuable source when we talked about Viking women was the book Valkyrie, the Women of the Viking World by Dr. Johanna Friedrich's daughter, which had just come out when we did those episodes. I think it remains one of my favourite source material books so far. Yeah, that, the Adam of Bremen and the life of Ansgar most especially. Yeah, I remember in The Life of Ansgar, it would just say something like, for more information, go speak to Father Ditma. And you were like, but Father Ditmore has been dead for a thousand years. Yeah, so that's why uh, Dr. Friedrich's daughter's book was much more accessible in in many ways. Uh, She's at least still alive and uh, we tweeted her about it a few times and stuff. So she was very nice too. But speaking of the life of Ansgar, of course he's still one of my favourite characters at least in the whole history that we've covered so far. And we talked about him in his very own episode, episode 12, which was all about how he brought Christianity to Sweden and being one of the first people to do that. But we also saw how Christianity didn't really take a hold right away and how it sort of established itself briefly, only to die down for a bit and then re-emerge a couple of times for a few hundred years or so. It also didn't take hold equally over the country, with some areas adopting the new religion faster than others. Well, the Vikings already had a religion, the Norse religion, which we covered in episode 19, 
And they didn't just feel like giving that up, you know? The Norse religion has Thor and Odin and lots of fascinating things. All the other Marvel characters <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. Is it DC or Marvel? I, I don't know. Couldn't care less. But Sorry, m- listeners who care a lot about these things. <laughs> More importantly, Norse mythology has Elsa. Yeah. Which is where my name comes from. The Catholic Church, and especially the diocese down in Bremen that was in charge of Scandinavia, they had to send several people whose name ended in Bert to Sweden before Christianity had established itself. Uh, it took many Berts. Yeah, Erin Bert, Erin Robert. Bertie Bert. Bertie Bert. Yeah, they were great. And uh, this was also a time where uh, you imagined seeing a play with Ansgar at school and no one else has remembered this play. <laughs> yes, well, actually, a bit of a development on that since... I talked to my aunt about it, and she seems to remember it too, from an educational-type play that was put on in schools. Is this the aunt that's also biased because she works in the Church of Sweden? (laughs) I don't think the Church of Sweden today, like, do a lot of kind of Ansgar PR. He's literally the sort of numero uno, the first priest in Sweden. This must be Yeah, but it's an not icon. like the current ones are numbered going up from Ansgar. No, that's because Ansgar was the one and only Ansgar. <laughs> Ansgar the first, the only. But getting back to uh, the history, in episode 20, we walked around our very own island where we live in Stockholm and looked at some of the remains from the Viking Age, including two runestones that are still with us today. We live in this area where Lake Melleren is starting to meet the Baltic Sea, and it was such a hub for trade in the Viking times that they left their mark on the landscape. And one of the places where they left their mark more than anywhere else was the big trading hub of Birka, which was located on another island a little further into Lake Melleren. We talked about Birka in episode 12 on Viking society, Because we know a lot about the Vikings thanks to the excavations and archaeological studies done at Birka. It's believed that between 700 and 1,000 people lived there, making it a lively trading hub. It was defended by hill forts and there are several graves around there. The people there traded raw materials that came from the Swedish hinterlands And there was also a substantial textile production and trade. And of course, the Vikings traded people. Yes, the thralls and other types of Viking slaves. When we think of the slave trade in general in history, we tend to think of the 16 and 1700s and around that sort of time, which we will cover in the future and see how Sweden got involved in all of that. Um, But it's important to remember that there was still a vibrant slave trade in the Viking era as well. Sometimes thralls were prisoners of war that the Vikings took back with them and made them work in their farms and in their lands, or they could be the prize of plunder or just people they bought from other people. Either way, they're an important part of the Viking economy. While a master could decide to set a thrall free, we don't know how often that happened. The system endured until King Magnus's new law in 1335 But by then, a more capitalist system had largely taken hold anyway, 
and it meant that it was more profitable to hire laborers and only pay them when they were needed as opposed to keeping thralls that you needed to feed and clothe all the time so that was pretty much already in place that's a very good point and uh, on that note we should probably start rounding off this episode as there's been a lot to recap and i think next time we can keep all of the political shenanigans into one episode uh, so we can sort of do a speed run through those uh, 20 episodes or so from the very first king up to um, our current king so to speak yeah i mean you forget how much we've actually covered Definitely. It's been great fun to go back and remind ourselves of some of the things that we've forgotten and uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it too. We will continue the fun in two weeks' time and recap the rest of the episodes. But for now, it's goodbye to the Vikings and goodbye from us. Until that next episode, don't forget to check us out on social media. We're at Flatpack Sweden on Twitter and just search a Flatpack History of Sweden on Facebook. You can email us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com and visit our website aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And until next time, take care. Goodbye from me. Hey, Dale. Hello, this is Chris speaking from A History of Stuff. (laughs) Yes, the History of Stuff podcast, that is what we make.